This podcast is brought to you by NetBank. Whether you're thinking of franchising your business, buying into or revamping your franchise, stay tuned for tips on how to grow your brand and portfolio. Welcome to episode 10 of the Franchising Podcast powered by NetBank. Today, we are interviewing Andrew Jardim from one of the leading South African liquor retailers, Liquor City. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Bendita. Liquor City started as a family business and the founders are still involved in the business today. The group has an excess of 450 stores, including both franchised and company-owned stores. Liquor City is synonymous for the retailing of popular local and international brands. Andrew is a director of Liquor City and is intrinsically involved in the franchisor's operations, strategy and finance. He ensures for smooth sailing with both franchisee and company-owned stores within the group, including the group's expansions, revamps and resales. Andrew, how does Liquor City, from a head office infrastructure point of view, deal with the differences of corporate-owned stores and franchise stores? Do you have different kind of like legs to the infrastructure? Well, a lot of the administration of the franchise stores is handled directly by the franchisee. We don't look at their financial statements, so they have their own bookkeepers and auditors. Our corporate stores have a team of people at our head office that that manage our administration and financial affairs. Uh, We have a team of people that does pretty much everything that we call family. If it's not family, they're very close friends to the family. The business is family-based. We've got a small corner cafe kind of culture with a corporate platform on which to operate. So when you come to administering that, you need someone who's strong and level-headed enough to control that kind of process. Rita Fontaine, founder of Liquor City for the last 40 years, is pretty adept at handling our administrative affairs. And I think a lot of the franchises would certainly benefit from someone like Rita to look after their business administratively. When you started off Liquor City or when Manny started off many years ago, were you franchising as well at that stage or did it start with corporate-owned stores? No, the group grew pretty much uh, organically from 1994. Manny opened his first store having successfully got a license in Sapphiretown and it opened on the 27th of April 1994, the day of our first democratic elections. And everyone was telling him, you're stupid to open on that day because there's so much trouble, there's so much violence. And his own personality was defiant enough to say, I'm going to do it. And he did that. So for the first, I'd say, 14 years of the business, till 2008, we were looking at growing corporate stores as a base. Franchising wasn't something that was a key focus or key proponent of the vision. But upon the entry of the supermarkets in 2003, we identified that there is an opportunity for the brand to grow on a franchise type model. And that's what happened. A lot of initial franchisees were independent businesses that turned to us to convert their independent store to a liquor city. And that's how the franchising model evolved. We started with a corporate store base, which gave us a good infrastructure from which to learn from and develop our own systems. And from there, we were able to provide more for a franchise model. So what are the motivators of a retailer that's independent that wants to convert to a liquor city? Because the margins in our industry are very tight, very thin, 
When a competitor enters the market and you lose part of the market share to their competitor, it puts a lot of strain on your business. And we noticed that between 2003 and 2012, many independent businesses were battling to compete within their, their close environment because of new entrants to the market. And our onboarding them as a franchise gave them access to a number of opportunities within our own infrastructure. Better deals, better systems, better operation processes, better administrative systems. And that's why independents would approach us and say, look, I've got a new competitor pretty much next door to me. Can you please make me a liquor city? I will represent your brand in my vicinity and I'll benefit from your systems. And that's how the franchising model has evolved. So in your experience with these independent retailers, when they convert them to a liquor city franchise, what typically would happen with turnover? What we found is that at the minute an independent community liquor store converts to a liquor city, their turnover increases in the region of 20% within the first month. The reason being the national recognition they get from a brand that has been recognized as the leading brand, independent brand in the country, is something that the customer feels comfortable with and can trust. They wouldn't necessarily have visited the independent liquor store because they don't know the person that operates the business. They don't have that trust in the business itself. And the brand that we've created with Liquor City, with the motto of your favorite liquor store, is something that we aim to become. It's not something that we claim to be right now, despite it being on our logo. It's an aim for us to achieve. It's an aim for us to try and be your favorite liquor store. And, and that's how we learn a lot from the consumers as well. We learn about what their requirements are, what they want, what they like, and we try and give that to them. Does the performance of your company-owned network differ to the performance of the franchise network? In terms of profitability, it's difficult for me to answer. We don't have a look at the franchisees' turnovers or profits. We do have a look at how they operate when we send our franchise team on a regular basis to the franchisees, they're able to assess whether the store has the right stock levels, whether the store has the right staff levels, whether the store has the right lighting, anything we can find that could affect their business, we're able to see from regular visits. When it comes to comparisons between corporate and franchise stores, it's easier to control a corporate environment because it's people that follow a particular direction when you're working with franchisees, you're looking at people who are their own business persons, their own independent shop owners, and they're looking after their family. They're looking after their children's school fees. They're looking after their children's university fees. And they do things to suit them. And it's difficult to restrain that and control that. We actually encourage independent individualism because it gives us a different culture as a brand. There's a lot of benefits that we can get from franchisees and the way in which they do business, just as there's a lot of benefits that our franchisees get from our corporate structure. Do you find there's a particular ratio of corporate stores to franchise stores that works well from a managerial perspective? We've established that if we can get one corporate store for every three franchise store, we're doing well. It gives us enough scope to learn enough of the community it gives us enough scope to be able to give the attention to the franchisees. We find that if you start moving from a ratio of one corporate store to four franchises, you start losing one of the franchises in your approach. 
having teams out to visit franchises regularly is difficult enough. So when you've got four franchises to get to, plus corporate stores to get to within a defined time, it becomes a challenge. You don't want to leave anybody behind. Everybody needs to get the same attention and encouragement. Do you ever find that franchisees are very resistant to new corporate stores opening because they say you may be taking turnover away from them in their catchment area? We're very wary of that. It's not something that we go out of our way to do, to put a corporate store somewhere where a franchisee will suffer from. We find that where we do put a corporate store, if there's franchises in the area, they benefit from the combined infrastructure, being able to market as a team. You'd be able to put a newspaper advert out to the local community and refer it to two stores in the vicinity instead of one. You start sharing the, the costs in that respect. You start benefiting from the exposure. You start benefiting from like-minded systems where the consumers get to understand and choose what they prefer to buy or where they prefer to buy. We find that buying from a corporate store or franchise store doesn't deter a customer. What the customer really values is the one-on-one interaction that they get with the manager. And when it's a franchisee and it's a store owner, there's a passion that you can't buy. And the consumer likes that. They like that individual attention, that you know my name kind of basis when they walk into a franchise store. So I don't think cannibalization is something that as a group we have ever discussed. We haven't had it mentioned in any franchise conferences. Franchisees that have had a corporate store come into the vicinity have benefited not only from the joint systems, but the ability to get stock that we import directly from overseas. They're able to get it a lot more easily and it makes their business a lot more efficient. And do you share ideas with franchisees where you brainstorm new branding campaigns or promotional campaigns. The biggest source of information when it comes to campaigns, trends, new products is our consumer, is the customer. And when you've got a ratio of three to one, the amount of information coming out of the franchise stores surpasses corporate stores by three times. So when we do get together, it's often a conversation that is consistent across both sides. What the customers are telling the franchisees, the customers are also telling us. And we can then discuss an efficient strategy to get it into both franchise and corporate stores when we're together. In terms of social responsibility, we, we hear a lot about teenage alcohol abuse. How do you handle that within your network? We, being a family, we're very cultural in terms of family culture and tradition. And we don't know of any of our relatives that started drinking at a very young age. So for us, drinking has to be done responsibly. Uh, So much so that our motto or our culture has evolved from 1994 to consider the pre-1989 liquor legislation, which dictated that liquor needed to be far away from the anchor tenants so that moms with children coming to buy their groceries on a daily basis wouldn't be tempted by liquor when they walk into the supermarket store. The majority of the corporate stores are very far from an anchor tenant supermarket. We want to be a destination-based store rather than a convenience. And that's the challenge. We find when liquor is convenient, it's more consumed. The World Health Organization has released 10 strategies to reduce alcohol abuse. And that's something that we've studied very carefully because as responsible retailers, we need to know what can we do to give the consumers what they want, but balance it in a manner that nobody suffers. Andrew, what kind of trends have you experienced coming out of the retail market? It's interesting, there's a cycle of products that tend to come to the fore. 
10 years ago in 2009, the craft beer market kicked off and we had a gin range that probably took us about two hours to count when we did a stock count. Reason being there were about four or five products in that category. 2014 came around and the craft beers had taken over our fridges. A lot of the consumers wanted to try different beers that had coriander in, that had different kind of flavors that were being made out of someone's backyard, as it were, so to speak. And the craft beer market has become sustainable for a number of players that have consolidated and set themselves apart from everybody else. And they've perfected their distribution line. So they're able to produce and distribute effectively throughout the country. And it's probably taken up a large portion of a number of liquor stores space. And that's 10 years later. Now, in 2010, the craft gin market kicked off. It really came into effect in around 2016, when a lot more people were making very nice gins. There's a lady out of Stillby that recently sold her business to the international company, Pernod Ricard, and she was making gins with a feinbos that she found in the area, and it became an international hit. There's a lady that started making gin as a hobby out of a factory in Lindbrough Park and she continues to make gins that are quite literally one of the best gins in the world and that's out of South Africa and it's good to see that we've got people who are willing to try different things. The craft market is certainly something that's always trending in South Africa. We found like I said 2009 craft beer, 2010 craft gin, then came the craft rums and rums starting to become a bigger market. We're not seeing as many local craft rums hitting the shelves as we'd like, but certainly rums out of the Caribbean, rums out of those areas of the world are starting to hit our shelves en masse. And it's interesting to, to take note of which South African company is going to, when I say company, which South African individual is going to be able to step up and compete in terms of the rum. So the craft alcohol items and the development, you spoke about them being locally based. Is this a trend that is also coming out of other countries? We do find that when we look at international markets, craft is becoming prominent. But I think the South African entrepreneurial culture is stepping forward because we're getting a lot of awesome products that are being made here that you're not getting overseas. And the biggest factor for those guys that are trying to do something here is probably the environment that we're in. We, we live in a society that is eight times out of 10 under pressure because of some depressing news article or some state of affairs that we find ourselves in. But the South African individual has that ability to overcome and, and contribute and create. And that's the beauty of it. You know, when you're part of that and you see it happen and you see the passion in someone's eyes of a product that they've made, you want to sell their product. And that's what makes us the liquor retailers that we are. We've got enough variety, enough space to be able to consider those products and put them on our shelves. So are there any plans to take Liquor City off our shores to, to other countries? At this stage, it's not a focus of ours. We're a family that has never really considered immigration. And you only consider immigration when you've given up hope. We've got a lot of optimism for the country. We think that there's massive opportunity for liquor, particularly now with the Competition Commission making the rulings that they are. We think there will be a lot of clarity over what can and can't be done in the liquor industry. And we're excited, you know, that there's going to be a platform of growth in the liquor industry where employment's going to grow almost exponentially, we believe, because you're going to be able to compete on a level playing field in an environment that needs it. And before we can even consider putting our brand overseas somewhere. We've got a market to please here that we're very happy with. Andrew, it comes through very clearly your patriotism. 
the family orientation of your culture. Do you think that's an important aspect of when you recruit franchisees? Do you, do you, do you focus on that culture that they need to be able to fit in? Yeah, you know, there's an old adage that birds of a feather flock together. We find that a lot of families want to do business with us because we're a family ourselves. The patriotism probably stems from the fact that our first store opened on the 27th of April 1994. We celebrate our 25th birthday campaign in August every year. Well, this year we celebrate our 25th. We, the reason we choose August is because April needs to be given the credit it deserves. It's the Freedom Day is, is not something that you can associate reasonably, responsibly with liquor. And it's not our aim. So we've shifted our celebrations a few months later for that reason. And yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting dynamic. Our family is always together. When we're having meetings at work, it's a family meeting. When we're having a Sunday lunch, for example, it's a family meeting. It's business is life and life is business in our group. And when you're working with an individual whose only livelihood is their store, they want to know that they've got somebody they can turn to that has the same same culture, same morals, same ethics that they have and, and can drive their business forward without undercutting anybody or penalizing anybody in the process. Andrea, it's been a fantastic discussion and your, your openness in terms of the business. And we thank you for taking the time to be providing us the insight of the dynamics of a company-owned and franchised retail network. I appreciate the opportunity, Mendita. I must say that I'm just representing a large team of people that make the Liquor City brand successful. There's people that wouldn't necessarily sit here but deserve all the plaudits for what they do. And that's why I'm in the position that I am, because I work with a wonderful team and a great company. Well, may you only grow from strength to strength. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by NetBank. Stay tuned for more on franchising or search NetBank Franchising for valuable information. See money differently. NetBank.